Welcome to the Higher Education Researcher. This is a podcast by the Center for Higher Education Research and Evaluation at Lancaster University. My name is Janja Komljenovic and my guest today is Tore Bern Sorensen. Tore is a postdoc researcher at the Université Catholique de Louvain uh, in Belgium. He works on the Teachers Careers Project funded by the European Research Council. Tore's principal research interests are transnational governance, comparative research, and the varying outcomes of liberalization and liberal ideology in education sectors across the globe since 1970s. He draws upon the theories and concepts from the disciplines of education, sociology, and political science to make sense of these developments. So today we will talk about his research interest in the study of global education governance and transnational actors. In particular, I'm interested in the recently published special issue in Globalization Societies and Education Journal with the title, Rereading the OECD and Education, the Emergence of a Global Governing Complex. Tore was a guest editor together with Christian Yitzan and Susan Robertson. Welcome Tore. Thank you so much, Janja, for having me. So you say the aim of the special issue was twofold. The first was to explore the different conceptual lenses and methodological approaches in studying the OECD as an intergovernmental organization. And second, to understand the OECD itself as an organization. You phrased the second aim as seeing like the OECD. So my first question to you is, about the changing positions and capacities of the OECD in global governance. Could you tell us what you found about the most recent maybe reorientations of the OECD? Yes, certainly. Uh, thank you, Janja, uh, for, for, for the question, because uh, I think we were very happy in this uh, special issue that uh, that came out just a few months ago in March, I believe, this year, to explore uh, the continuities as well as the continuous adaptation uh, of the OECD in what has become a, a global education policy field. Um, since the 60s, uh, there's certainly some defining features that have remained in place when it comes to, to thinking about how the, the OECD has navigated the international, transnational uh, landscape of education and governance uh, more generally. Um, <clears throat> and then when it comes to the more recent orientations, um, what is interesting is that the, it seems that the scope of the OECD in, the, in its activities has expanded uh, over the recent decades. Uh, not, and that is, for example, reflected in the PISA, the famous per, uh, the program for international student assessment, which is coordinated by the OECD, where you have uh, countries, especially in Asia, uh, East Asia, uh, that are doing very well on, on, on this kind of ranking, this kind of assessment. Um, and so the OECD is certainly also very active in Asia and also very keen on uh, expanding its reach, uh, its legitimacy to provide policy recommendations also, for example, in Latin America. Um, so, so this 
so on the one hand, there's the activities of the OECD is reflecting uh, arguably a, a geopolitical shift where Asia is becoming more important and the OECD is trying to, 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 to promote itself there with its activities. Um, because historically, uh, the OECD was very much uh, related and associated with uh, transatlantic collaboration, so North America and Europe, but that has certainly expanded over the recent decades. Another thing that is important to mention is that um, the OECD has also been heavily involved in trying to influence the sustainable development goals, so getting more into this notion of global development. Uh, development has certainly uh, always in the history of the OECD been a defining feature, but with the sustainable development goals, uh, the OECD is also trying to expand its reach and become relevant in the governance uh, in, in, uh, in countries that previously were beyond the reach uh, of the organization. Another thing that I would like to mention about before we move on is that, of, of course, uh, the OECD is very much in the public imagination uh, and in much research related to, to the PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment. But what is interesting is that the OECD is continuously trying to, to, to develop new uh, ways of thinking about competences and they are being added to, to PISA. Uh, for example, they have been looking at financial literacy uh, and one of the more recent offsprings is the global competences, which reflect an interest in the OECD also to have, to have something to say about uh, more softer skills, um, about empathy and, and having a, let's, let's say a global orientation uh, in, in, in the individual competences, thereby moving beyond uh, the basics of reading uh, and, and mathematics and STEM um, to, 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 to have a, let's say, a broader outlook on what should be included in, in the way we think about competences and how we assess it internationally and perhaps ultimately globally. Thanks very much, Tor. So we see um, quite a lot of then expansion happening here of content, geographical scope, and so on. Um, and so I'm curious, you address the main ideas, theories, and styles of reasoning informing the OECD's legitimacy and governance in the special issue. And you talk about the multi-centric view of education, paradigms of modernization and development, in terms of numbers and comparison, standardization, and so on. So what are the main ideas and theories that you found and how do they work? Yeah, well, that, that is a very, very relevant question when it comes to, to thinking about the OECD and, and making sense of this organization. Uh, as I mentioned before, there's, there's certainly an uh, a strong element of continuity in the way uh, that the OECD has tried to engage with education and governance more uh, generally. And, and we have in the special issues uh, different contributions, um, for example, by uh, 
Veronika Maricic and Daniel Tröler um, about um, the, the development paradigm and its relations to, to ultimately to, to uh, religious ways of thinking about uh, the world and maintaining social uh, and moral order. Um, they go all the they go some centuries back and relate the thinking, the current thinking, the OECD to to uh, to Presbyterian thinking. Um, but more recently, if we look at what has been going on since uh, since the mid 20th century, certainly this idea of development and economic growth uh, and ways of thinking in a, in a rather linear manner and also through stages of economic development has been a defining feature of, uh, of the OECD. Um, when we started planning the, the special issue, we were quite uh, inspired by, for example, uh, Matthias Meltzer's uh, work on, on the growth of the economic growth paradigm and the role of the OECD in, in promoting that uh, from, from, from the, from the uh, yeah, from the 60s and 70s. And that is still very much present, but at the same time, the OECD has also had to had to adapt to uh, to 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 changes in 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 the global environment. And there are some people that that suggest that the OECD is due to this geopolitical global shift uh, towards Asia. The OECD has somehow to to find a way to to maintain its relevance. Um, also because there is in some quarters uh, a skepticism about, well, these theories about human capital that the OECD has been promoting and, and, uh, and relied on for so long, uh, how, how much can, can we actually, uh, how much do they actually help us to explain and improve education systems? And, and when we talk about these, these grand grant narratives that the OCD is also helping to promote by coining concepts like knowledge-based economy, uh, economic growth, um, and the way that we think about uh, competences like those branded and promoted in PISA, and most recently the global competences. It is also important to mention that the OECD should not only be seen as monolithic it is not an entirely coherent organization. When you look at how uh, the OECD is working, um, you will see that there are nuances and, and uh, not a totally coherent view about what education should be about, for example. Uh, and that is why we, we note in the special issue, and that is prominent in, a, in, a, in the article by Helen Seitzer and, and her colleagues, that it is, there's a multi-centric view of, uh, on education uh, and it's not entirely coherent what they're actually uh, putting forward on, on the OECD side. It's very interesting. Um, and you outlined the formal as well as more informal processes and workings or ways of working of OECD's policy formation. So can you talk us through these ways, these different ways of working, especially if it's such a complex organization uh, and not monolithic, as you just said? 
Yeah. That is indeed uh, part of the ambition with, with the special issue. And I, and I think in, in much of the research about the OECD, um, this aspiration both to, to map and explain the formal structures, but also uh, somehow get access to what we in the special issue call the backstage of what is going on in the organization, which of course uh, uh, in, in, involves some uh, challenges. And I would like to say that <clears throat> I, I really strongly believe that it's very important to get, to get it right about the formal structures of any organization, uh, including the OECD. And that is, when it comes to this organization, certainly a huge challenge in itself. Uh, because as I said uh, before, uh, it is not an entirely monolithic um, organization. Of course, there's some kind of, um, you can see that they try to coordinate uh, messages and try to create some level of coherence in the way that they uh, think about the knowledge-based economy, for example, and competences. But still, there are certainly different levels of emphasis. So it's not monolithic. Another thing that is very interesting and especially relevant when it comes to education is that um, the research that uh, certainly I have undertaken over the years suggests that some fora in the OECD, and there, of course, are many, many uh, governmental bodies uh, in, in, uh, working in such an organization, and they are open to a different extent towards uh, different stakeholders. Uh, and I remember there was a report from the mid-2010s, I believe, that suggested that those working groups, those fora that are related to the economic uh, directorate, um, tend to be more closed than those associated with the, the Directorate of Education, which is uh, very interesting. So, so it seems that there's a relative, when it comes to the OECD, uh, as an organization, a relative openness when it comes to issues of, of education. And it is indeed, uh, it is quite an array of, of uh, groups that are involved in one way or the other with the governance uh, activities of the OECD in, in education. So a relative openness. When it another thing that is very important when it comes to the formal structures of the OECD is that um, the activities in the OECD, some of them you opt in and you choose from a menu, so to say, and others you are as a member uh, obliged to, to take part in. And when it comes to education, again, there, it seems that there's a relative wide range of activities that you can opt in to. Of course, it comes with some obligations that can vary depending on the program, uh, but, but there's quite a, a let's say, uh, there's a strong element of um, that, that you can choose what, what you want to take part in. And then over time, things might become more established and consolidated. And we have certainly seen that not least with PISA, but also with uh, the TALIS program, the teaching and in, uh, learning international survey uh, that I have done uh, some work on in the past years. So getting the formal structures and not least also the budgets, <laughs> the way that these activities are being funded, 
being aware of that, I think is very important for understanding what is going on and how the, the, the organization works. And then, of course, you have the whole element of the informal structures and everything that is going on in the backstage. And we have uh, uh, several contributions in the special issue that is related to this, that is drawing on uh, archival material. Um, so like a meeting minutes uh, and other internal OECD documents. Um, and, and that delivers, uh, that enables uh, insights into how the organization has been working, the communication that has been going on with different programs. We have Sutia Greg and Christian Udesen that is writing about uh, the OECD Educators and Education Systems program, which was very, very influential because it paved the way for PISA ultimately. Uh, very interesting study. We have also uh, uh, Barbara Hoff and Regula Bürgi that write about the, the thinking about the use of computers in schools um, in the 70s and 80s, I believe. Um, another thing that is really, really uh, interesting and very topical still, certainly. Um, and so these kind of studies that is drawing on archival material, um, I think is is uh, they, they they enable uh, some use into the the more informal uh, ways of, of of working in the OECD because it obviously brings some challenges uh, analyzing documents conducting interviews um, participant observation even if you have a if you if you're able to do that will only bring you so far. In, uh, in, in, in finding out about what is actually really going on more informally in the organization. All right. So the fourth key theme that you follow in the special issue is the impact, influence, and wider implications of the OECD in education policy and practice. So obviously there is really a lot to say about this. Um, so I wonder what you think are especially notable findings that you present. Yeah, I think we have 10 papers in, in the special issue, and I think they all offer indeed, as you, uh, as you also suggest, that they all offer particular insights into the workings of the OECD historically and also uh, currently. Um, <clears throat> I think that one paper that really stood out for me uh, among those 10 papers was the one by Israel Moreno Salzu and, and Susan Robertson about, um, about the influence and, and the use of uh, the OECD PISA program in Mexico. I think that was a really, really interesting paper because there's, as far as I know, not so much research about uh, how the, the impact and influence of, of the OECD in Latin America. And, and it's a, a very sophisticated uh, analysis uh, that is being undertaken in this paper by uh, Israel Moreno Salzo and, and Susan Robertson, um, looking at the different scales. It's, and Mexico is a federal state. So we have this additional layer, so to say, uh, which adds, uh, it adds increasing complexity. Um, so that is uh, certainly very, very interesting. Another 
paper that I think um, that is very interesting in this way is the way the the, the paper by uh, Keita Takayama and Bob Lingard that is looking again at the influence of the OECD in a quite different context, uh, Japan, uh, related to uh, the introduction of a new assessment regime uh, in, in, in Japan. And they, uh, they have a very detailed, thick description of the process over the years based on, on interviews and document analysis, uh, very detailed interviews. And, uh, and I think that's a, a very powerful uh, and very uh, well compelling account ultimately of, of, of how interwoven the different layers uh, and, and uh, the network of actors uh, are in, in, in global education governance and, and really working across scales from the local, regional, uh, national to, to the global or, or transnational. I think that's really, uh, that's really powerful. Um, I would also like to say that one paper that I think is really important when it comes to researchers um, is the one by uh, Hikaru Komatsu and Jeremy Rabelai about how to think uh, and use, for example, data from uh, the PISA uh, assessment in our generative or yeah, in a, in a constructive manner. How can you use these data uh, in 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 a, in a way that is is actually furthering the the purpose of education uh, and using them in a in a critical manner uh, because certainly the OECD uh, with its programs have been very very influential in in uh, in providing new orientations and directions in uh, education uh, research internationally. And I think it's a very strong point by Hikaru Komatsu and Jeremy Rabelai that if PISA weren't there, well, something else would likely be uh, there instead. Uh, so these international large-scale assessments are not, <laughs> uh, not going to go away probably. Uh, so how can we relate to them in a, in a constructive manner? Uh, and they, they provide some uh, instructive steps for, for researchers to think about how can we use these data in a, in a in a in a constructive manner, and in a critical manner at the same time. Um, I would like to add that some of the things that we don't address in the special issue uh, are, for example, there's not so much on adult learning and early childhood education. Um, there's not so much on higher education. And, and there's certainly uh, scope for, for, for more research also when, when it comes to, to the activities of the OECD in these areas. It's very interesting that the OECD launched a, a program in the mid 2010s, uh, the so-called AHILO program, Assessment of Learning Outcomes in Higher Education, but uh, it never really got anywhere. Uh, we have some research about it. Uh, Clara Morgan and Riyad Shahan has wrote about in 2014 in comparative education, but it never really moved anywhere, this idea of assessing the outcomes uh, of, of higher education at, at the bachelor levels. Um, and and if, you, if you Google that <laughs> uh, program, uh, you will quickly see some very interesting discussions about 
why didn't that happen? What was the interest involved? Uh, and there's, for example, some critique of that the those uh, universities with uh, higher rankings, uh, uh, more reputation, that they were not so interested in these kind of rankings. And but certainly, that's a very very interesting topic to to look further into if you if you're interested in higher education. Well, thanks. Um, so I'm also curious about the first aim of your special issue that you call seeing the OECD um, and is methodological in nature. It seems to me that this was at the background of your introductory article to the special issue. Um, and you did mention already uh, a few method methodologies that authors have used, uh, such as document analysis, archival work, observation, and so on. But I'm quite interested in your thoughts about the epistemological challenges in investigating the OECD and obviously uh, complex supranational organizations like that. Can you tell us more about these kinds of challenges? Yes, uh, that, that is, was certainly a main concern for us. Um, and uh, uh, Christian, Susan, and I, we, we discussed it quite a lot also. Uh, and it, it is mentioned quite briefly in the introduction article that this is the main concern, but I agree with you. This is something that could warrant more, uh, uh, more reflection. Um, <clears throat> what, it, what, is, uh, what is interesting is that I, th I think quite a few of the contributions in the special issue is, is are being quite successful in, in being sensitive to Find, uh, find ways uh, not to conduct uh, methodological nationalism and being focused on what is happening within national borders. Certain, certainly all the contributions uh, try to, to go beyond that with the focus on the OECD. And I also think um, because of the sensitivity uh, to, uh, to, to the workings of the OECD also more informally, in those contributions that, that draw on uh, archival materials, uh, that, that they are able to, to a large extent to, to, to avoid the methodological globalism uh, where the OECD would be presented maybe as a imposer of global education agendas in a rather uncritical manner and seeing as some kind of uh, hegemonic uh, and saying uh, we are very happy that in the special issue, none of our contributions really convey that message that the OECD is all powerful. Um, I think all the contributions uh, are sensitive to the fact that the OECD needs to, on a continuous basis, to negotiate and adapt to, to the pressures from from, from agents at, at different levels and to changes in let's say, political sensibilities. Uh, also now when there's an, a surge of uh, well, nationalism uh, in, in some countries and the OECD has to negotiate uh, all of that. And I think that if you look into the workings of the OECD, uh, how the organization works and how the OECD also relates to to, to stakeholders and agents elsewhere, well, then you avoid uh, this image of, of, of the OECD as some kind of a, 
as part of a global steamroller, so so to say. Um, but it, but it really requires a, a detailed view of of the relations between organizations. Uh, I think that that's a very important point in terms of uh, avoiding this methodological globalism, as we call it. Um, again, I would like to mention uh, the contribution by uh, Keita Takayama and Bob Lingard when it comes to, uh, to, to, to going beyond mythological nationalism and, and, and uh, mythological globalism uh, with a very detailed uh, account of how this assessment regime in Japan was being introduced. Maybe just a final uh, point about the methodological and Therefore, also because they're related to the theoretical challenges in making sense of, of the OECD. Uh, we are in the introduction article referring to, to, uh, to, to the theories of, for example, um, Pierre Bourdieu and Bessel Bernstein, uh, theories that were very much uh, a product um, of, 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 uh, of mythological nationalism, actually. Um, and, and we have been trying to somehow, there's some research that has been undertaken trying to adapt because they need to be adapted these, these kind of theories if you want to use them for starting an organization like the OECD or other things going on uh, in global governance. Uh, and, and we believe that they provide some resources, but we also need to, to adapt them and need to complement them with, with other theoretical frameworks we cannot just uh, uh, adopt such theories um, that originally focused on the national and then rescale them to, to the global level. Uh, they need to be adapted in, in the process. Great points. Thanks, Tore. Um, I think those are really valid issues also for the study of any other kind of supranational organizations, even those that are perhaps more um, prominent or seen in the higher education sector too. And finally, um, our, our audience is quite diverse, you know, spanning from uh, PhD students to also, um, you know, uh, academics and even the general audience. So I think it would be quite interesting if you could share your experience on editing a spatial issue. You know, not everyone uh, has an editing experience. Uh, so you were a, a guest co-editor together with uh, Christian Nitzen and Susan Robertson. You know, how was it like cooperating with the other co-editors? How was it like working with authors or anything else? You know, what comes to your mind if I ask you about your experience on co-editing a special issue? Yes, it was a, a huge learning experience uh, for me as, as a postdoc uh, to, to work with, with uh, Christian and Susan, uh, who, who had more, certainly much more experience with me than me um, in, 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 in editing and, and leading such kind of publication projects. Um, and I, I, it was a wonderful collaboration, I must say. Um, and Susan and, and Christian and I, we had our first meeting in November 2019. Um, and so altogether, the process uh, took 
around one one and a half year before the special issue was was published. So it was um, quite a long process. But uh, I I guess that some the editing of some special issues could could be even longer. So what we did was that we in the beginning developed a framing document for the special issue. It was basically a sort of a literature review where we identified four thematic lines of analysis in the existing literature. And we used that to, to think about, okay, how can we contribute further with a, a special issue? Um, and this document actually later uh, provided the basis for the introduction article uh, in the special issue. Um, we shared this framing document um, with, with, uh, with scholars and um, we were very happy that we found uh, many scholars that would like to be involved. Um, and from then on, uh, it was really a very, very inspiring process of, um, of, 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 of reading and commenting on drafts. We also had a webinar uh, some months before the final deadline. Uh, we organized a webinar with the others so that we could all share drafts and give feedback to each other's papers. Uh, that was uh, that was really uh, extremely inspiring, and and really propelled uh, the thinking about the special issue as as one coherent uh, publication. Um, so, yeah, I I believe that there's a certain complementarity between the papers, and that was certainly the the idea from from the beginning. That was the aspiration, and I hope that. Readers will agree that <laughs> that that they are recently complementary. Even though, of course, we didn't want our framing document of the special issue uh, and our thinking, of course, developed throughout the process. And we didn't want the framing document to to constitute some kind of straitjacket for the authors. So we wanted them to, of course, to develop uh, their own writing and their own research. But in the end, uh, it, it it we we believe that it. Their contributions could still relate it rather well to uh, to this framing document that we had that we had prepared before inviting the, the scholars. Sounds great. Um, thank you so much, Tore, for speaking with me. It was uh, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Anya, for inviting me. Pleasure to meet you too. And just before I let you go to say that we will post a link to the special issue in the episode description. Thanks again and bye. Bye.